Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 342nd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. <laughs> Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. This morning, our lead story is about a new set of ICD-10 codes that address human trafficking. And there are 29 new ICD-10 codes that providers can use to document clients who might be at risk of sex and labor exploitation. Nella Leon Chisen will be reporting our lead story. Nelly is the Director of Coding and Classification for the American Hospital Association. Also on today's Talk 10 Tuesday will be Leslie Krigstein. She'll be reporting on the latest regulatory news to come out of Washington. And CDI expert Glenn Krauss returns to the broadcast to report on CDI. In relation to the current lawsuit against Providence Health, it's all, of course, about CDI. And you have a talkback segment today. I do, and I'm ready to tell everyone what I think. <laughs> We're really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. We have much news to report on this broadcast, and we begin this morning with Dr. Larry Field. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to visit the new ICD 10 Monitor webcast subscription portal. See the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Good morning, everybody. Uh, an interesting observation. Uh, you know, we've been doing this for a good period of time, about eight years or so, and again, my focus personally is on protecting hospitals, physicians, and even patients from a lot of the regulatory inflictions that we've all had to deal with from many different governmental agencies and uh, auditing agencies, even the private payers. Well, just in time for Halloween, uh, the Office of Inspector General released their guidebooks for Medicaid programs on how to statistically sample claims looking for suspicious items. Um, and in that document, not only is it a, a good document to go learn how things are going, but it has a link to utilize the software that the OIG actually used to look at their claims. And the title of or name of the software that they use is called RAT, capital R, capital A, capital T, and then a hyphen stats. And to me, that uh, implies already issues in regards to how uh, government agencies are looking at us um, as professionals. It's already a rat. It must be there. And it's not the only place that you see these abbreviations. I mean, we've all learned them as physicians in medical school. The, the one that comes first to mind is Agca Van Diesel, which we all learned on how to admit a patient, which is the A, and diet and condition, and essentially how we would place a patient into the hospital. And we still use that today, and a lot of the good EMRs are still based that way um, just because that's how we were trained. And we can go ahead and get orders that are in a, a correct fashion and, and get the things in that we need. But we also see these kind of disrespectful uh, abbreviations in other parts of the government, and CMS is not uh, immune to it. And in the quality program, they came out with healthcare acquired conditions and abbreviated that as HACK, H-A-C. But to me, uh, HACK is H-A-C-K, 
which in tennis was always a person who was doing a crappy job. They were goofing. They weren't very good. And when you combine these uh, in different governmental agencies, um, it to me becomes a very disrespectful way to approach a profession. And I'm sure there's a lot more of them out there. And Chuck and I had talked before this broadcast, and we like to try and pull our audience and see if there's areas that you're working in that you find those abbreviations and where they are disrespectful to what it is you're doing. And you can email Chuck at Chuck at MedLearnMedia.com. Ending for today, you know, I'm, again, a Yogi fan, so uh, today it's pretty been pretty appropriate, particularly over the last couple weeks. You can observe a lot by watching. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Field, very much. That was Dr. Larry Field. Dr. Field is a treasurer of the American College of Physician Advisors. It's Tuesday, it's October the 2nd, 2018, and you're listening to the 342nd edition of Talk to you Tuesdays. Stand by. Were you previously trained in ICD-10 but noticed gaps in your training? Would you like to improve your coding skills and knowledge? Or are you having trouble coding advanced cases in ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, or CPT? If you answered yes to any of these, then we have the workshop for you. Ahima's Crack the Codes Advanced Coding Workshop walks you through identifying correct codes with actual redacted patient health records. Create your own one- to four-day training schedule by choosing the classification systems that meet your needs and get a thorough review of ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, or CPT. Don't miss AHEMA's highest-rated face-to-face meeting starting December 6th in Las Vegas. Visit ahema.org slash events to learn more and to register. Thanks, Mark Anthony. Now's the time for Dateline Washington, and reporting live from Washington, D.C. is Leslie Kringston. Thanks, Chuck. We may be rapidly approaching the midterm elections, but there is no shortage of activity here in Washington, D.C. these days. Before the House of Representatives wrapped up their fall business, they passed some notable bills, two of which we are watching closely as they await action in the Senate in short order. But one of the more notable accomplishments for Congress of late was actually the passage of an appropriations bill to fund the Department of Health and Human Services through the entirety of fiscal year 2019, which began yesterday. It's been years, actually almost a decade, since they followed regular order uh, and since many continuing resolutions later. Uh, this bill includes uh, about $90.5 billion in discretionary funding for HHS. That's $2.3 billion above last year's level. Meanwhile, CMS is set to relieve, receive $3.6 billion in program management expenses, and that's an increase of more than $125 million above the president's budget request. NIH is going to get an increase of $2 billion uh, up from uh, last year. And for those health IT folks, uh, we saw that ONC is funded, uh, again, at the same level, uh, $60.4 million, um, fending off another attempt to cut their budget by almost 40%. So one of the big pieces of legislation that has made its way through both the House, now twice, and Senate once, is H.R. 6 the Support for Patients and Communities Act, which is a comprehensive opioids package. Uh, this compromised version of legislation overwhelmingly passed the House last Friday and awaits passage once again in the Senate. CHIME members are pleased with a number of IT provisions, 
including those to harmonize prescription drug monitoring programs. It expands access for telemedicine for substance use disorder treatment, mandates the electronic prescribing of controlled substances, and establishes best practices for displaying substance use disorder data in a patient record. However, our membership was very disappointed when a provision to align 42 CFR Part 2 with HIPAA was left out of the final package. We are hopeful that this important policy can be considered by the Senate after being passed in a bipartisan fashion by the House as a standalone bill during the summer months. Meanwhile, it seems new grant funding is unveiled from the various federal agencies on a near daily basis to combat this epidemic. The other bill our members and much of the healthcare community is watching that passed the House last week before they recessed to return to their districts before the election was the reauthorization of the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness and Advancing Innovation Act, or PAPA. The bill traditionally focuses on public health preparedness and response, but for the first time, the bill discussed cybersecurity readiness as a means of public health preparedness. It awaits action in the Senate as the current reauthorization expired at midnight on Sunday. Yes, the Hill has been active, but so has the administration. Some important rules are now set to be released by the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, any day. The 21st Century Cures Act mandated that the Office of the Inspector General, or OIG, define what isn't information blocking. The proposed rule doing this, now rumored to be hundreds of pages, hit OMB two weeks ago. It also appears to include other interoperability and EHR certification pieces in addition to the long-awaited information blocking definition. There is also another IT-related rule that has the industry scratching their heads and taking bets that is also at OMB. This one is titled Interoperability and Patient Access. CMS has discussed including interoperability as a condition of participation for the Medicare program earlier this year, leaving many wondering if this role will do just that. We know Administrator Verma is committed to doing more to facilitate patient access and interoperability. We'll see what this role has in store. Also worth noting for our listeners today is that the Joint Quality Payment Program and Physician Fee Schedule rule uh, is also at OMB, so that's coming sometime soon, too. It's not going to be a quiet fall here in Washington for a number of reasons, and the health IT ecosystem is going to be hit by a deluge of monumental rules as we gear up for the midterm elections. Erica, stay tuned. If this can be considered calm, we are in the calm before the health IT regulatory storm. Thank you, Leslie. That was Leslie Krigstein. Leslie is the Vice President of Congressional Affairs for the College of Health Information Management Executives, known as CHIME. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And Leslie, thanks for being on the broadcast. ICD-10 Monitor contributor Glenn Krauss joins us now to report on clinical documentation integrity relative to the lawsuit against Providence Health for alleged upcoding. Glenn, good morning. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. In my article I published last week titled Moving in the Right Direction and Getting to the Root Cause of CDI, I outlined that CDI indeed plays a major role of overall healthcare delivery, including supporting the physician and other clinicians in the accurate, effective, and complete communication of patient care. We all have been familiar with this lawsuit with Providence. I wanted to take a little minute to put a kind of different spin on this. Today, largely, CDI focuses upon reimbursement-related measures or processes, achieving outcomes of additional reimbursement. There are a myriad of reasons that back up and lend credibility to this, my longstanding advocacy and support of CDI, transforming itself into a profession that is based upon and geared towards facilitating realized improvement in communication of patient care. 
Uh, there are two recent developments that I wanted to uh, point out that should uh, definitely invoke some interest for most in the CDI industry or who are responsible in any way at CDI at their facility. The first relates to a recent September 27th OIG report finding that a new report from the Office of uh, the OIG reveals widespread and persistent problems related to prior authorization and claim denials and Medicare Advantage. So basically, uh, based on the data that the OIG reviewed for denials and appeals and outcomes from 2014 to 16, they found that the, these organizations overturned 75% of their own prior authorizations and claim denials from 2014 to 16. And so uh, the most of the denials were for payment requests for delivered services, meaning the services were already delivered and the remaining were for prior authorizations. So it, it, what's important to me is that uh, another development is this Fitch rating report on nonprofit hospitals. It highlights that despite hospitals' healthier balance sheets, uh, hospitals continue to struggle with operating margins. And the operating margins in 2017 were 1.9%, down to 2.8% in 2016. Pretty significant drop. So what do these developments have to do with CDI? Well, if you look at both developments, my thoughts are with a large number of inappropriate denial overturned on appeal, as identified in the OIG report, how many of these may have been avoided if all the clinical information facts and physicians' clinical thought processes were better communicated in the record? Was there additional clinical information available after the fact that may have potentially been instrumental in avoiding or alleviating some of these sizable denials? The pre appeals process, as we know, is very lengthy and it certainly contributes to cost and uh, to collect subsequently reducing hospital margins. The second development indicates that hospitals are receiving less reimbursement for services provided from third party payers, more reimbursement attained through some type of value based methodology and more services provided and less costly outpatient sites. Hospitals can bolster their margins through more effective management of the revenue cycle. And one area that's key to me, uh, it's obvious, is to strengthen the, the volume and dollar amount of medical necessity denials, with the majority attributable to insufficient, or also known as poor documentation. I continually see everyday poor documentation negatively impacting medical necessity establishment. And the key point I would like to make at people uh, takeaway point is CDI can play a major role in driving down adversarial determinations of medical necessity and costly denials through migrating away from a strict focus upon reimbursement as its ultimate goals and measures of success. We should be really focusing on partnering with our UR and case management departments to identify their pain points in terms of documentation insufficiencies that they wrestle with and working with uh, third-party payers to uh, secure the right level of care authorization. We should also be looking at medical necessity denials as part of a continuous quality improvement initiative to tailor our focus on documentation improvement by those physicians who document insufficient documentation. So I want to close by saying it's all about integrity of the record and we need to, we need to capitalize upon the opportunity to really uh, make our market improve in the quality and the communication. Thanks, Glenn. That was Glenn Krauss. Glenn is a nationally recognized CDI expert and is a member of the ICD-10 Monitor Editorial Board.
Thanks, Erica. And Glenn, thanks very much. And you can read Glenn's reporting on this very important subject on our homepage at icd10monitor.com. Our lead story this morning is about the new ICD-10 codes that providers can use to document clients who might be at risk of sex and labor exploitation. One of the organizations urging adoption of these new codes was the American Hospital Association. Here now with more on the new codes is the Director of Coding and Classification of the American Hospital Association, Nellie Leon Chisain, to tell us more about these new codes. Good morning, everyone. Today is October 2nd, so yesterday we had over 200 new diagnoses codes that took effect. But out of that uh, batch, there were 29 new codes that are probably more important for us than any of the other codes. And these uh, codes uh, can help physicians and clinicians better classify a diagnosis for patients who are victims of human trafficking. Now, human trafficking is a public health concern as well as a criminal act. Healthcare providers have a significant opportunity to help identify and assist victims of human trafficking. Studies have shown that 50% to 87% of trafficking survivors reported being seen by a healthcare professional while they were being trafficked. These victims are treated in emergency departments, health clinics, physician offices, urgent care centers, hospitals, and other settings. In fact, a local TV station in Houston recently highlighted the efforts of Houston Methodist Hospital in educating their nurses, physicians, and even the housekeeping staff on how to be on the alert for possible signs of a victim of trafficking. The new codes are intended to help differentiate between these patients from other victims of abuse. The structure of the new codes is consistent with other abuse codes where we have separate codes for adults and children, as well as codes for confirmed versus suspected for sexual or labor exploitation. New codes are also available for history of labor or sexual exploitation, encounter for examination and observation of exploitation ruled out, and an external cost code to identify multiple repeated perpetrators of maltreatment and neglect. And as some of our uh, listeners know, we do have uh, several external cost codes already, but what really differentiates these victims is that um, there are multiple repeated perpetrators, uh, and, and so we thought that that code was especially important. In general, these new codes are an important tool that will support appropriate treatment and track these occurrences in communities. Coding professionals and clinical leaders can join together to educate staff that these new codes exist and about the need to collect data. Now, this was a very important area for us here at the American Hospital Association and we took a leadership role as part of the Hospitals Against Violence initiative. We worked with the Catholic Health Initiative, Massachusetts General Hospital, and other members to request these codes. The AHA's website provides links to numerous uh, tools and resources on human trafficking, including a fact sheet on the codes, an infographic on the 10 red flags that your patient could be a victim of trafficking, and several other resources created and used by several hospitals. 
Now, there are key terms that clinicians may use in their documentation, which would be used to support use of the new codes. These key terms are included in the upcoming fourth quarter issue coding clinic, as well as a fact sheet available on our website, um, Coding Clinic Advisor. Uh, these key terms are also an area where a coding professional can work along with clinicians so that the right documentation is available to assign these codes. As we well know, without the proper documentation, new codes will not yield the results needed. The codes will help to better track the incidence of human trafficking and the appropriate services that can be developed to assist these victims. This is obviously an area where coding professionals can feel that the codes we report can have an impact on real people and help victims. Back to you, Dr. Reamer. Thanks to you and the AHA for leading the way on this, but how sad that we need these codes. Thanks, Nellie. That was Nellie Leon. She's saying, Nellie is the Director of Coding and Classification for the American Hospital Association. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And Nellie, thank you very, very much for uh, being on our program today. And by the way, there's an excellent article on the new codes. It's written by Ellen Fink-Sandwick. It's on our homepage at icd10monitor.com. Now, there's an issue that's caught the attention of our own Dr. Erica Reamer. So, once again, here's Dr. Reamer with her very popular segment called Talk Back. Erica, talk to us. I would love to. And I'd actually like to invite Nellie to hang around because if we have a moment at the end, I'd like to hear what she thinks about what I'm about to say. I'd like to share a nugget that I got from Kathy Merchland, a dear friend and colleague. But first, the backstory. When I was a physician advisor, I used to use the example of Charcot joint numerically listed after diabetes in a diagnosis list as an example of needing to be explicit with linkage. Years ago, when you followed the coding breadcrumb trail for Charcot joint, it led you to syphilitic Charcot joint. I used to say, imagine the patient's surprise when they see syphilis on their record. Then another friend of mine, a very astute neurologist, pointed out that I had taught her that the documentation must support the diagnoses. And how could I have a syphilitic Charcot joint as a diagnosis if I had never mentioned syphilis in the documentation? Touche. As a clinician, it would make me crazy to get a query asking for linkage when it was obviously linked, at least in my mind. So guideline 1A15, allowing presumptive uh, linkage for code titles sporting with or in, was most welcome. Let me paraphrase it. The word with or in, in first appeared in 2018 guidelines, should be interpreted to mean associated with or due to when it appears in a code title, the alphabetic index, or an instructional note in the tabular list. 2019 added either under a main term or a subterm after the alphabetic index phrase. The classification presumes a causal relationship between the two conditions linked by these terms. The conditions are coded as related even in the absence of explicit linkage unless the documentation clearly states that the conditions are unrelated or when there is a superseding guideline demanding explicit linkage. Diabetes is a lot of examples of this. If a provider were to diagnose type 1 diabetes, and then have a secondary diagnosis such as retinopathy or periodontal disease or foot ulcer, the presumption would be that there was a causal relationship as evidenced by the presence of with in the code title. 
if the condition were not related to the diabetes, the provider would have to make that explicit. Inflammatory bowel diseases have an assumptive linkage with rectal bleeding, intestinal obstruction, fistula, and abscess. The code title says, with. Here are some examples of in. If a patient has postpartum hemorrhoids, since the title of the code is hemorrhoids in the puerperium, you assume automatic linkage if hemorrhoids are diagnosed in the appropriate time frame. If a patient has a diagnosis of arsenic poisoning and the manifestation of neuropathy, the indexing leads us to G62.2 polyneuropathy due to other toxic agents because the in is found in the alphabetic indexing. The due to verbiage is listed in parentheses, making it non-essential. That is, the doctor doesn't have to say due to. Kathy pointed out one which I had not recognized. Have you ever queried a provider to get linkage for a causative agent of a pneumonia to capture a complex pneumonia because they documented pneumonia and noted a culture was positive, but they didn't make the linkage explicitly? The alphabetic index has in parenthesis due to close parenthesis listed after hypostatic, the prior entry, and then about every other organism you can imagine. It is our interpretation that the with-in convention makes querying unnecessary. If the provider documents pneumonia and a bacterial, fungal, or viral agent, these conditions should be coded as related. That is, the specific pneumonia would be the correct code if there is a specific pneumonia code. I'm sure there are other conditions which I haven't found yet. If you have other examples, please email us at, and this is a correction to Larry's earlier um, email. It's really cbuck at medlearnmedia.com. I'll share them with our listeners. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. And uh, next Tuesday, we're going to be returning to the subject of physician burnout. There were two reports recently, and we're going to have two perspectives. We're going to have the perspective of a physician and a psychiatrist. Joining us next Tuesday will be physician Michael Salvador and psychiatrist Stephen Mox will be with us next Tuesday. But that's going to be a wrap for this, our 342nd edition of Talk to Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our panelists today, Dr. Larry Field, Glenn Krauss. Thanks, Glenn, very much. Leslie Kringston, welcome back. It's nice to have you with us. And our special guest, Natalie Unchasing. And remember, every day can be Tuesday when you listen to Talk to Tuesday on demand, anytime, anywhere, and it's free. Listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And I hope you're going to be with us again next Tuesday for another edition of Talk to Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk to Tuesday. Thanks for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.